Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, before we get started today, I thought I'd explain at least a little bit of why it's been so long since we posted an episode. I guess I was on vacation for a few weeks, Walid was on vacation for a few different weeks, I was sick for a couple of weeks, such that I didn't even make it to ACL. Um, I switched teams, we released this Allen NLP toolkit that I was working on a whole lot. Walid has been working hard on this Semantic Scholar launch, some new features that will be coming out shortly. And so we've just had a crazy summer, but we are back in business and are hoping to have some more regular episodes here now. Um, we're thinking that we want to focus a whole lot more on interviews and we'll, uh, our episodes I think will almost exclusively, almost exclusively be interviews. We'll occasionally do some individual papers ourselves uh, still, but it's just more interesting to have a conversation with people about papers. And we'll do as many of these as uh, we can find people that are willing to talk to us. So probably two per week we'll try. We'll see how that goes. Okay, so today's paper is uh, the best paper at ACL this year. It was titled Probabilistic Typology, Deep Generative Models of Vowel Inventories by Ryan Cotterell and Jason Eisner at Johns Hopkins University. So I thought this paper was really interesting. And to set the stage here, I think we should talk about natural language processing versus computational linguistics. I don't know if everyone thinks about it this way, but uh, the way that I like to think of this is these are like two different groups of people. Uh, NLP people uh, are computer scientists who want to see what we can get computers to do with language. So they focus a lot more on end tasks and performance metrics and uh, can we get computers to answer questions or label part of speech tags or parse sentences or do, do whatever you want with language. Uh, on the other hand, there are computational linguists who are interested in, in studying language as a phenomenon. And uh, they use computational methods in order to study language, but their goal isn't so much to get computers to answer questions, it's to see what we can do with these computational methods to get more insight into how language works in people. And there's a lot of overlap in, in the methods that these two groups use, and so we talk to each other and go to the same conferences. Um, but really there are two very different kinds of aims uh, between these, these two groups. I think it makes a lot of sense to make uh, to the distinction clear between the two, uh, but I don't think the terminology used is standardized. Like yeah, yeah, that, that's mine. I think many people use computational linguistics uh, to refer to the NLP kind of problems, like actually like more of engineering, um, like uh, more practical applications for for linguistics. Yeah, maybe the better way to say it is: Are you are you approaching this NLP computational linguistics space? Uh, from the perspective of a computer scientist or from the perspective of a linguist. Yeah, that sounds good. And I, th I don't know, it, it seems like almost all of the papers that I see at ACL and EMNLP uh, are the computer science side. We care a lot more most of the time about practical applications, about building models, about pushing numbers up, uh, maybe to the detriment of good science, but that's a different discussion. Um, and that there are very, very few papers that you actually see that, that are actual linguists trying to study language in ACL conferences, even though it's called the Association for Computational Linguistics. 
Yeah, so the number uh, used to be much more um, the, the latter, like trying to study language. And over the years, uh, it incrementally became more and more empirical, which um, for me, I'm, I'm inclined to, I'm actually an engineer uh, at heart. So uh, I actually prefer to read papers that have a practical application. But uh, I know that uh, like there's also a lot of value in, uh, in linguistics work. Yeah, so uh, to me, it, um, so this paper that we're looking at is very squarely a linguistics paper. Uh, and it, uh, it's studying language. And actually, I, from what I could tell, like I, I'm not a phonetician. I, I haven't studied this very much. But from what I could tell from reading the paper, it makes a significant advance in the field of linguistics that we're going to talk about. And to me, I, I think that's probably why this paper got picked as a best paper, uh, because um, it reminds all of us that actually people in our community care about language. And uh, it's a nice reminder, and it's a really nice paper. Um, also, it's, it's not just, hey, here's some new linguistics. It's they, the way that they made this advance in, in linguistics was by taking modern statistical tooling and applying it in intuitive and nice ways that we'll talk about. Okay. So what this paper is actually looking at is something called linguistic typology. Uh, from Wiki I, I looked up the definition of this on, on Wikipedia just to have a nice, concise definition. This is a field of linguistics that studies and classifies languages according to their structural and functional features. Its aim is to describe and explain the common properties and the structural diversity of the world's languages. So we have some somewhere over 7,000 languages uh, in the world that have uh, existed that we know about. And so this tries to form some kind of typology or hierarchy or categorization of the phenomena that we see in language. And in particular, this paper is looking at phonetic typology. And even more particularly than that, they're looking at vowels. Phonetics uh, is what sounds do languages use, including vowels and consonants. That's a little bit too much uh, for the models, I guess, that they looked at in this paper. Uh, also, I, th I think it's for some technical reasons, they, there probably isn't as much data to look at. Um, but uh, they, so they, they're focusing on vowels. So uh, which vowels show up in a particular language and why? Is there some underlying distribution uh, that, that these sets of vowels come from? Uh, so if you think of all the, the different vowels that you can produce, it's by making different shapes of your mouth and your vocal tract, doing different things. Again, I'm not a phonetician. But uh, it, it turns out that some vowels are easier to say than others. And if vowels are really close together, they're harder to distinguish. So you can think of um, these notions as giving some intuition for which vowels you might expect to see in a particular language. So saying which vowels suggest we have a discrete set of uh, of vowels that we're talking about, but um, it, it, I think of vowels as a continuum of, of sounds, and I'm not sure if the paper was discussing this uh, as a discrete or as uh, as a continuum. Yeah, that's actually a really um, interesting point, and there's some nice discussion in the paper about dealing with this, and I think we'll get to a little bit get to it a little bit in more detail later. Um, for now, just think of Imagine we have a discrete set of vowels. Uh, in particular, there's the International Phonetic Alphabet. And they have a list of some tens of discrete vowel symbols that represent different sounds in different languages and are roughly constant. Like it, It's roughly the same one sound or 
small clustering of sounds maps to a particular discrete symbol that we're going to actually use. So what we're going to do is, with this discrete set of symbols is try to decide which ones show up in which language and why. Remember, we're looking at phonetic typology. We're trying to understand why vowel, why groups of vowels occur in a language. If we can come up with some model of uh, a generative process for how vowels show up in a language, in some sense, then and it matches what we actually see in attested human languages, then that, that tells us that maybe we actually understand something about, about this process of how vowels come to be, how, how a particular vowel set arises in a language. Just like in physics, for instance, uh, if I can write down a simple equation that actually predicts what's going to happen uh, in some physical system, that means I probably understand at least to some extent what's going on in that physical system. We can do the same thing with language. If we can get a, a decent model that explains or, or predicts what we actually see in human languages, maybe we understand something about what's going on in this phenomenon we call language. So if we do a good job modeling this, we should be able to say uh, it's unlikely that these two vowels would appear in the same language. Yes. Uh, and we don't condition on anything about the language. We don't have text, or we don't have like the consonants. Uh, we don't condition on anything here. Uh, no, um, not really. The condition on anything. Uh, about the particular language we're modeling. Yeah, it's just um, so they they show some experiments where like given four vowels, try to predict one that's the one that's held out. So, but but yeah, this is a generative model of the set of vowels uh, that show up in a language where that's the only thing they're modeling. No no other condition. Okay, so uh, to uh, try to model this phenomenon, what they what the authors did here was look at. Uh, linguistic theories about how vowels show up. Uh, and I think I briefly alluded to two of these earlier in this discussion just a little bit. Um, one that is called uh, focalization, which essentially is some vowels are easier to say than others and so are thus a priori more likely to show up in a language because they're easier to produce. Uh, sorry, any linguists, if I'm butchering this, but that's how I understood this term. Um, Next is dispersion, uh, which is essentially if I have two vowels in a language, I should be able to tell them apart, both as a speaker who needs to produce distinct, distinct sounds to, to make different phonemes, and as a listener who needs to decode different phonemes based on some acoustic signal. So you put these two things together and you get something called dispersion focalization theory, uh, which is at least as this paper says, the best explanation for phonetic typology uh, that we have in linguistics so far. And then what, what the paper does is says, hey, let, we can actually encode these intuitions in a probabilistic model that we can fit from a bunch of data. And shows how to do that in a nice way. So what do these models look like? Well, remember that we're trying to, what, what we have is a set, a discrete set of vowels. Uh, possible vowels that show up in a language, and each language has some subset of these attested. And so what we need is a model over subsets. Turns out there are these things called point processes that are models over subsets. And uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the math, but the paper shows three different point process models that capture increasingly rich interactions between the vowels in the subset that is drawn. Uh, the first one is called a Bernoulli point process. In this model, uh, each vowel 
gets a score independent of every other vowel in the subset, which essentially just means I, I can find which vowels are most common and I can assign a probability, probability distribution to the subset based on what vowels are there. And uh, if you remember the terms from before, this, this captures the focalization intuition that some vowels are just easier, easier to produce and so should show up more often. The Bernoulli point process can capture this. The next point process that they talk about is called a Markov point process. And this introduces a pairwise interaction term between all pairs of vowels in this subset. And what this can do is say, uh, model at least to some extent this dispersion uh, uh, criterion, which is that two vowels should, should the vowels in your set should be far apart in some kind of perceptual space so that you can easily distinguish between the set. It, it only allows pairwise interaction, so it, it's not a complete model of this, uh, but it, it actually lets us model at least a little bit this dispersion phenomenon. The last model they use is called a de determinantal point process, uh, and this is much more complex. It allows much richer interactions between the vowels in the subset because the probability uh, of the subset is proportional to a determinant of, of a matrix of vowel embeddings, essentially. You could think of it like that. And the determinant uh, function lets you have uh, just a richer set of interactions between all of, the, um, all, of the, all of the vowels in the set. So this is my first time to see uh, an NLP paper or computational linguistics paper that uses uh, DPPs, the detrimental point processes. Have you seen other papers uh, using this? Before? I am not really familiar with point processes at all, sadly. Um, so this was all new to me. Uh, there are some references to other work that does similar stuff, but it, it's not work that I had followed. So yeah, it's new to me. Yeah, I know that several people at TMU were trying, uh, but uh, no success stories yet. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so these are the, these are the models that we're looking at point process models that capture subsets of vowels. And now what we need to do is learn these models, given some data. Uh, I'll leave details about inference algorithms and how you actually learn parameters for this to the paper. It'd be hard to talk about. Um, and it's pretty dense anyway. Uh, so let's talk about the data. The authors used data from a survey of vowel inventories of 223 languages. In these 223 languages, there were 53 total IPA symbols. So our vowel, our total vowel possible set that we're going to sample a subset from has 53 vowels in it. And each language has some subset of this. Turns out the large majority of languages had between five and seven vowels actually attested. Uh, I think English has nine. Um, then uh, some, there, there was one that had two, but very few that had fewer than five. Uh, and some had upwards of 20, I think the highest may, be, may even have been in the 40s. So a wide range of possible vowels, um, but the vast majority, five to seven. <clears throat> and this is also a good place to bring up the comment that you made earlier about uh, actually this is a continuous space. There are some nice footnotes in the paper that, that talk about how um, actually this is a complicated thing because uh, your the way that you pronounce the phoneme in uh, the vowel in what is different from how I pronounce the vowel in what, but if you're writing down the phonemes in a language, you probably want to write them down the same. So there's speaker variation, there's accent differences, there are regional dialects, there are 
Uh, it turns out um, the consonants on either side of the vowel affect how the vowel is produced. Uh, we have things like diphthongs, like Y uh, actually changes the vowel in the process. Uh, uh, the, the vowel changes as you're saying it. And that's also dialect dependent. So in the South, you say it's not as much a diphthong. It's more like wa. I, I said that wrong. I'm not a Southerner. But um, uh, anyways, there, there's a whole lot of variation. And so it's really hard to make this discrete. And what, what they ended up doing, uh, which is not ideal, but it worked, uh, is to, um, well, let me back up just a minute. Uh, the data that they used had a transcription of, of formants. Oh, I need to back up even further. OK, sorry. Um, so uh, how do we characterize a vowel? That's, a, that's another interesting question. So there's, there's this quality called timbre in music and in phonetics. Uh, speech that we hear is uh, an acoustic signal, a frequency wave, um, uh, a sound wave with varying frequencies in it. Uh, that has a bass pitch. And um, if I change my bass pitch, it changes the way it sounds. Like I can say the vowel A, 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 A. Uh, and it's a different pitch, but it still sounds like an A. But if I, and I can also use the same pitch and change the vowel. So I get A, A, U, E, uh, and um, same pitch, different vowel sound. What makes that actually different? The thing that makes that different is, is the timbre, which we can write down mathematically as um, the other sets of frequencies relative to the bass pitch that are in the acoustic signal. So uh, if you're familiar with harmonics or musical instruments, like if you, um, if you vibrate a string, like on a violin, uh, it'll vibrate at its fundamental frequency and then at various overtones. So at twice its fundamental frequency, at three times its fundamental frequency. There will be all of these different vibrations that together make up the timbre uh, uh, of the sound that you actually hear. And so it's it's this combination of overtones of harmonics that distinguish between the A and the E and the I and the O, even if they're all the same pitch. Hopefully this makes sense. Okay, so. Uh, this is what's different, uh, and ling linguists have, have come up with this thing called formants, which um, are like the, f uh, the set of formants are the, the, the set of harmonics or overtones that you get uh, for each um, dis distinct vowel. So it, you might say that like the, the second overtone that's double the frequency has the highest, um, the highest relative amplitude in the, in the signal that you get. Uh, and then that maybe the next highest one is is the fourth uh, harmonic, whatever. So the 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 frequencies at which you get the strongest uh, harmonics essentially are formants. Uh, I'm probably not again. I'm not a phonetician. This is probably a little bit off, but that's the basic idea. Um, and uh, so the way they encoded these vowels. Now we finally get back to the actual data. The way they they encoded these vowels is as uh, the first two formants associated with each vowel. So for the vowel ah, you write down uh, in the language what frequencies uh, the harmonics were that made up uh, these formants. Okay? Now, as you, as, as you said, as we've talked about, uh, these frequencies vary across person, across uh, 
variety across dialect, across region. And so um, even recording them in the first place uh, is hard and was done by different people in this vowel inventory. And so it's hard to, to be consistent there. Uh, and that, that's even before they got the data. Um, but they got the data. What they did was they averaged the values of these formants across all of the languages so that each distinct IPA symbol, its feature vector was the two formants averaged across all of the, the formants as recorded in the data for the 223 languages. Okay. Whew. That's a, yeah, that's a very interesting discussion. Uh, did they actually collect the, uh, the data themselves or did they uh, use an existing resource? They used an, ex an existing resource. Um, and uh, does it, is it the case that every vowel among the 53 unique IPA symbols for vowels have a different uh, like pair of, uh, of formants, of top formants? Yes. There's a figure in the paper. Um, they only show, one, two, three, they show like uh, 12, um, 11 different, uh, different phonemes, uh, different IPA symbols in figure one on the first page of their paper. And they're all in different spots. So the, the, the graph plots them on formant space, where you have the, fir the first two formants in a, just a grid. Uh, and they're all in different places. Um, some are close. Some are closer than others, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, they're all different. OK. So this is the data that we have. And uh, remember, so the, the model that we're doing is, is density estimation. We're building a generative model of some data that we saw. This is very similar to language modeling, where I given some set of words, I'm trying to predict the word that comes next. And the typical way to evaluate language modeling is on perplexity. How surprised, so I, I train my model on a bunch of data, I hold out some other data, and then I see how, what probability does my model assign to this new data? How surprised is it by the data? And if it is very surprised uh, at data that was drawn from the same distribution that it was trying to model, then probably it didn't do a very good job modeling the data. It should be able to, so, so there, there's a decent argument that uh, if, if it can assign high probability to held out data, it's a better model that better captures the underlying distribution. And so the way that um, this, this paper evaluates their models on these vowel inventories is they take the 223 um, languages, they split it into train and test, train, dev, and test, and they do this with cross-validation. Details are in the paper. Um, but you train the model on some data, and then you evaluate the probability that the model assigns to held out data. How likely are the vowels that are actually tested in these held out languages according to my model? One issue with this evaluation is it's really hard to think, uh, like, how well am I doing? Did I do a good job? I guess with language modeling, we can actually measure perplexity in humans. And so we can have a decent measure of is my model at least coming close to the perplexity that a human would assign to some new text? Uh, it's hard to think of an analogy here. Um, linguists could assign surprised, surpriseness scores, perplexity scores to vowel type vowel sets in new languages. That that seems implausible. I think the number of people who can do this is very small in the world. Yeah, yeah. So so. Uh, Perplexity, while it is like a, uh, the right way in some sense to evaluate these kinds of models, it's also in some sense unsatisfying because it's really hard to know what this even means. 
And so uh, they also present a, another evaluation, which is given um, a subset of the vowels in a particular language, predict the ones that are missing. So they have three different settings here. One is I'm given all of the vowels in the language except for one. I know there's exactly one missing. I have to predict it. And then they also say I'm given uh, either one or zero uh, of the vowels could be um, removed. I have to predict if there's one removed and if so, which one. And then also uh, up to two removed. So these different, the, you can call them closed style evaluations where you hold one out and you try to, you try to predict it. Okay. So that's, that's the experimental setup. How well do they do? Um, so the best model that they did uh, got, I'm, I'm not going to tell you perplexity numbers because they don't mean anything to me and they won't to you either, I don't think. Um, but the best model that, that uh, they had when you're holding out exactly one vowel and trying to predict it, the best model got the right vowel 73% of the time. That's higher than I would thought. Yeah, it's pretty high. Then, but I guess still looking at this, you have the question, how good is that? Um, to me, it's kind of hard to say. You need upper and lower bounds to even be able to evaluate how good this is. Like we, we tend to like having reasonable baselines, like majority baseline or other kinds of things when we present models on some new task so that we know how good something is. And we like having some uh, upper bound human performance, for instance, on question answering tasks or other, other kinds of upper bounds. And neither one of those was given here in this paper. So I guess one uh, obvious thing would be to like to pick the most likely vowel that's not in the set. Um, yeah, to, to some extent the Bernoulli point process does this. It's a model that only really captures how common different vowels are. Uh, and so um, you could think of that as something like a most, um, a most frequent baseline, um, but it's parameterized. So it's not exactly that. And it would be really simple, I think, to just compute, uh, like have a list of all of the vowels uh, by frequency in the 223 languages and just pick the top one that uh, doesn't show up. And they, they don't report this. Um, but the, the Bernoulli point process is only about three, three and a half points worse. It gets it right about 70% of the time. So, maybe, like, that, that to me says maybe actually this pick the best is going to do pretty well. Or, sorry, pick the most frequent is going to do pretty well. But maybe I'm wrong and the, the, the Bernoulli point process is actually doing something fancier. But seems like it's not that big of a game. But it, it, it is a game. They also don't have any kind of upper bound. Um, you might think of, like, how, uh, what, what would an upper, a good upper bound look like here? One possibility that I thought of was, uh, say there are two languages in my held out set that are overlapping in all of their vowels except for one. If that's the case, my model has nothing that will let it pick between the two vowels, right? It, you have to know which language it is in order to get the vowel right, but you don't know which language it, which language it is. And in, in that case, the model can't get it right. It can, it can, the best it can do is random guessing because it doesn't have the information it needs to, to, to decide which vowel was held out. And so um, you could use something like this to measure, uh, to, to get some kind of upper bound for how well you could possibly do on this kind of task. 
I would expect this to be very high. I would expect this upper bound, uh, according to your uh, suggestion, to be, to be an extremely high number, like yeah. close to one. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how, I haven't looked at this data, I don't know how much this kind of overlap actually happens. And so maybe it's not a reasonable thing to compute because you actually don't get this set. But anyway, uh, just the, the point here is that it would have been nice to have some more context on what these numbers actually mean because it's kind of hard just looking at this table to know how well am I actually capturing phonetic typo typology. I don't feel like I, I know that well enough. And how about the, uh, for perplexity, you can always like um, say we're going to pick um, the, like the next vowel at random. Like uh, we're going to... Think of all the different combinations that you can make from the uh, from the set of 53 vowels, and um, assign them like uniform distribution. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. There, there are some issues there, because this is a subset. So you're talking about a uniform distribution over the power set uh, of 53, which is kind of ugly. Two to the 53 things, but. It's uniform, so it's just one over two to the fifty-three for each one. Um, but but yeah, the, it, anyway, the, there are some footnotes that talk, that uh, in the paper some some interesting discussion about um, actually you you uh, you, need, you need to be careful in uh, how you evaluate or how you, how you assign probabilities to models because um, there actually is a distribution you can capture over the number of vowels that are tested. Some models that they talk about in prior work uh, will always assign higher probability to smaller vowel inventories, and um, that's just that can't capture the distribution of languages that we see because the mode is at five to seven uh, and not at two. There was only one that had two, and so if you if your model will only grow in probability as the subset size decreases, there's a problem, and and some naive baselines that you might think of might also have this problem. Uh, there are a ton of other interesting details in the paper that we're not going to talk about. This episode has already gone on very long. Uh, it was an interesting paper, uh, a lot to talk about, uh, I guess especially because it's out of the main uh, focus area for a lot of people, and so there was a lot of background in linguistics and phonetics that we had to talk about to actually understand what's going on here. Um, but uh, I will highlight, there are some nice vis visualizations of some of the transformations that, that the models learn from input form into space, these two frequencies, to a perceptual space, um, how the model interprets uh, closeness uh, between these vowels, which is different from the original distance, distance metric. They, uh, I totally glossed over this uh, because it's complicated, but they, they learned a nice interpretable mapping from this input space to a, to this perceptual space that you can read about in the paper. It's pretty interesting. And I think that's it. Thank you, Matt, for presenting this paper. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to, take a, to talk about a paper titled Tying Word Vectors and Word Classifiers, a Loss Framework for Language Modeling.